If you will turn with me to, sorry, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 to 8 today. Colossians 1, 3 to 8. Uh, I wanted to do, they'll know we're Christians by our love because one of the things in our text today that Paul commends the church in Colossae for is their love that he's heard of. So it's uh, when, when the church loves unconditionally the way God calls us to, it's a testimony to him for the world to see. Um, there were a lot of people gone last week, and um, I didn't, I wasn't able to get a video recorded, uh, so that didn't get put up last week, and um, we were, we were short-handed in terms of technical stuff, so the audio wasn't uploaded either. So this morning, I just want to do a real quick recap of what I talked about last week, because it's some foundational stuff for the letter, and then we'll get into our text today. Um, So last week, we talked about uh, the person who planted this church, it was not Paul. Um, it was Epaphras, who was one of Paul's converts on one of his missionary journeys. And Epaphras was from Colossae, so he went back home and he started spreading the gospel to the people that he knew and planted the church in Colossae and also the churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So, When Paul writes the church in Colossians, he actually has not met these people. He doesn't know them. Um, They would have certainly heard about him, but he didn't know them personally, which is most of his letters are written to churches that he established, and he had met the people that were at least the founding members of that church and was able to write to them with some kind of relational connection. But he didn't have that with the Colossian believers. Epaphras, the reason why Paul writes this letter is because Epaphras, who is part of the church in Colossae, is encountering some some kind of heretical teaching. We don't know exactly what that heresy was. We're going to talk, I'll talk in just a second about some of, like, three of the, the, the three major ideas that people have that it might have been, but we don't really know specifically But Paul wrote the letter because Epaphras came to visit him when he was in prison in Rome to seek his help with some of this stuff. And so Paul writes this letter. Normally, Paul would have given that letter to Epaphras to take back and hand deliver to them. But um, he sends it not with Epaphras. He sends it with somebody. In chapter 4, we learn that Tychicus is the person who is delivering the letter to the Colossians. So since Paul refers to Epaphras in the book of Philemon as a fellow prisoner, there's speculation that maybe while he was visiting Paul, perhaps Epaphras was arrested as well and wasn't able to take the letter back to the, to the Colossian believers. But the letter um, is to address whatever this heresy is. And so just real quickly, uh, some of the things that people have suggested could be the the heretical teaching that's taking place it's hard to gather because we have we have the letter so we can gather but from what paul writes that he's addressing something he wouldn't address something that wasn't an issue in the in the letter so he he's addressing certain issues so we can kind of gather somewhat but it's kind of like listening to a conversation when somebody's on the phone and you can hear what they're saying 
but you don't know what the other person is saying or asking. And so it's, there's somewhat like this is just kind of speculation. But the three things that have been the most commonly suggested things are perhaps it's just Judaism. Perhaps these people are, uh, they've become believers, they've listened to the gospel message and converted to Christianity, but there is maybe some people who are still pushing Judaism. We know that when Paul was on his missionary journeys, it was frequent that he would establish a church, he would move to the next town, and we call them Judaizers, would come in and try to undo everything that he had done and tell the people, it's okay to follow what Paul says, but you first have to become a Jew. You have to still follow the law. You have to be circumcised. You have to uh, observe the law and all the festivals and all the things that God commanded his people. Um, and so since that was a problem, and since Paul sometimes dr- addresses some things that that kind of have a Jewish flavor to them, there's been a suggestion that maybe it was just something like that going on. Another suggestion is that it's potentially uh, Gnosticism that's being taught or trying to work its way into the church, which is something that happened at the time, um, but full-blown Gnosticism didn't really come into existence until the second century. But what we see in the first century is some of the beginnings of those teachings. Uh, the Apostle John had to, in his letters, first first, second, and third John addresses Gnosticism dealing with this issue in the same area of the world. And so it's potentially Gnosticism that is trying to creep into the church, although it would have been a very elementary level Gnosticism, not the full-blown thing that we see in the second century. And then the third one is what we call syncretism, which is a blending of Christian theology with other religious or philosophical thoughts. I mean, that's what syncretism would be in the church, Christian theology, but blending in other types of religious or philosophical thoughts with that. Um, And that would have been more of a threat from the inside, probably, as opposed to something from the outside, because you would have had believers who had converted from, uh, and most of them were Gentile, would have converted from their culture and the cultural practices and maybe the religious practices that they had and so there is a potential that Paul has taught this new this gospel that is new to them and now they and they've accepted that and and begun to live that out but there is no one lives in a vacuum we are all a product of our culture and even in the church today and this is another reason why I think the letter might be really good for us to study the church today like, this is a picture of the church today. There are so many believers out there who hold to other things that they mix with their Christian theology and all of the stuff that comes from the culture or from cultures around the world. And so it's a real threat, and it's potentially what is going on in Colossians as well. So Paul then, he writes this letter to encourage this young church to instruct them and to assure them that the message that they receive from Epaphras is complete and sufficient and nothing else needs to be added to it and nothing is to be taken away from it. So that's kind of the background in a nutshell. Um, if If you want more, you can either go back and listen once we get the audio up or um, you can, we can talk and I can give you my notes and we can talk about the stuff that we dealt with last week. 
let's let's uh, look at our text today, starting in verse 3. If you're able to stand, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word? We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this text today, um, may your Holy Spirit teach us, be our guide, and give us wisdom and glean what we need to know from this, um, not just to have the knowledge in our head, but may it also affect us, may it also change us, may it also make us uh, more like you. Um, Especially as we learn about the love that this specific church had for the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, in your notes, what we're going to do today is we're going to be looking at the results that come when the advancement of the gospel happens, when the gospel begins to really take root. These are things that we see in the text that happen among the church. So your first point is that when the, when the advancement of the gospel happens, Thanksgiving happens in the church. Thanksgiving happens in the church. Uh, It comes from verse 3. Verse 3 says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Um, So it happens not just within the congregation or within the individual believer's life because that person has been saved or that group of people has been saved and delivered from their sins, but it also happens among the church globally. And so Paul has never met these people, but is rejoicing and thanking God because of the report he's hearing about them from Epaphras. Now, as always, Paul begins his letter with this type of thing. Uh, the verse, first two verses that we covered last week are very typical of first century letter writing. We write a letter and we, or an email or something, and we put the, uh, the recipient of our message at the beginning, and we sign some kind of like salutation at the end, and then we sign our name so they know who sent it. In the first century, they would give the name of the person writing. So he says, Paul, he would give a little bit of a title of himself, um, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then Paul tends to include anybody else who might be hanging out with him at the time, Timothy. Um, and, then he, and then they address who the letter is going to, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He gives a little bit of a greeting or a blessing or some sort, grace to you and peace from God our Father. But then there is a section that's typical in first century letter writing that's called either the prayer section or the thanksgiving section. And Paul, um, in almost all of his writings, Paul does this. Um, and so he, 
he's giving thanks because he is a man of thanksgiving. It's in, so Paul is a person who understands the necessity of having a thankful heart to the point where he even instructs people when he writes them to be people who are expressing thanksgiving. Um, and so just to give you a little bit of a picture of Paul and his attitude of thanksgiving, he wrote 13 books of the New Testament and only in Second Corinthians, Galatians, and Titus does he not have a Thanksgiving prayer or section like this. So out of his 13 books, 10 of them have this. And one could argue that Galatians, perhaps he didn't have much to be thankful for because <laughs> they were all kinds of messed up. Um, and so what Paul does is rather than start with what is typical he jumps into correction because the church in Galatia the Galatian churches were uh, receiving a different gospel than what he'd preached so in general though 10 out of his 13 letters that he writes he has the section where he prays and he gives thanks to God for what God is doing in the life of those people and in Philippians chapter 4 Paul actually instructs the church when they are praying and, and they're asking God to intercede in their lives. Paul instructs them. He says, when, you, when you're praying, you know, bring your prayers and petitions before the Lord. He sa- but he says, bring your prayers and petitions. And then he sets off almost like to emphasize with thanksgiving. Don't forget that part. We don't just go to God and say, I need, I need, I need. We need to recognize the goodness that God has shown us. And so Paul instructs the believers in, in Philippi, make sure that you are being people who are thankful. And the reason that this is so important is because think, having a thankful heart does much for our walk with Christ. And so we're, I'm going to give you just three things here. And there's probably more, but these are three things that I thought of as I was working through the text that um, happens when we have thanksgiving in our heart and i'm talking about even if you don't feel like it or there doesn't seem like there's much to be giving thanks for to to bring your heart before the lord in a manner of thanksgiving is good for us in so many ways and so here are three of them the first thing is it forces you to turn outward and not focus on yourself when we come before god and we are expressing thanksgiving for the many blessings he shows us, for the intercession that he does do in our lives, for his sovereignty and how his will for our lives, we, we can look back and we can see how his will for our lives has been, been perfect for us. And perhaps we would be able to see how if we'd had our own way, it ended up in our harm or our or damaging us somehow or would have ended up maybe uh, leading us down a bad path whatever it might be as if when we come before god and we look for those things and we recognize them and we bring a heart of thanksgiving before him it gets our attention off of ourselves and puts our attention on him the second thing is a heart of thanksgiving acknowledges that god is worthy of thanksgiving no matter what the current situation is or our current emotions a lot of times um i mean i can tell you that there are times when i'm in a bad mood or somebody's really made me angry 
And the last thing I want to do is go before God and pray. And the last thing I want to do is act happy. But when I do that, when I, when I realize I need it and I do it, God helps me to understand that no matter what my emotions are at the time, no matter what the situation is in my life, like he is still worthy of praise and my thanksgiving. And so it turns my attention off of me and puts it on him and then gives me a perspective to realize that he's worthy of it. The third thing that Thanksgiving does is it gives us that godly perspective, not just in terms of understanding that he's worthy of Thanksgiving no matter what, but it helps us to see the situation or helps us to see a specific person or helps us to see a specific um, stronghold that maybe we're dealing with or somebody else is dealing with, whatever it might be. It helps us to be able to process those things from God's perspective and Anytime we come before him in prayer, and um, especially in Thanksgiving, God is going to help us to process life biblically from his word of truth. So the first thing is that Thanksgiving happens in the church. The next thing that happens when the gospel advances is that faith, hope, and love are found in the church. Verses 4 and 5, faith, hope, and love. He says, uh, so we thank God our Father when we pray for you. Verse 4, when, uh, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. And so we've got this triad, faith, hope, and love that this is not the first time Paul has mentioned it. There are at least two other places in Paul's writings where he he weaves these three together. And so it's kind of this triad that he um, uses to encourage the, the churches or to uh, assess the churches. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 13 is probably the one that's most famously known uh, where he says, you know, he's gone through a list of what love is. He's listing love is patient, love is kind, does not boast, does not envy, all those things. And at the end, he says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And so there's that triad, faith, hope, and love. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, he says this, remember before our, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your, your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we have here in this usage of this triad um, is kind of a basic description of the Christian who has a genuine saving relationship with Christ. These, somebody who is a genuine believer who walks with Christ is going to have these three things as basic points or parts of your walk with him. In Paul's writing, though, we understand that these are not characteristics or traits that you're born with. These are things that uh, we can't develop them naturally just because we determine we want to we be a more loving person or we want to be a person who has greater faith or Whatever it is, we can't, that's not something that we can develop. They're, they're matured in us after salvation by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so it's a description 
of a believer or a group of believers that helps us to see if we can see those things in our lives then we can see that's fruit of the spirit that is evident to all those who are observing and this is important in the context of colossians because one of the things that paul addresses in the letter is that uh, that whatever this heretical teaching is that's made its way into the teaching of the pulpit in Colossae, one of the things he addresses is that this heresy, whatever it is, has led the people to believe that they're not full in Christ, that they're not complete in Christ. And so, you know, perhaps they've come to believe that Epaphras didn't give them the gospel in its entirety, or They've been taught that there is more to be done in their life before salvation can fully take effect to save their soul. So one main concept of Paul's instruction in the letter is to understand that the fullness of life and salvation is found in Christ, and the gospel that they heard from Epaphras was the entire message of good news lacking nothing. So Paul uses this triad as he's writing to them of faith, hope, and love to describe them as believers, which affirms their genuine Christian character that has been born out of their salvation. Faith binds them to Christ. Love binds them to the church, and hope binds them to an eternal reward. So as Paul's addressing them, he says, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus that binds them to him, and the love that you have for all the saints that binds them to the church, to other believers, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, so they're bound to this reward. And that which, that with which we are bound cannot be broken. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 13. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. That can't be broken. So that with which they're bound they cannot be broken. And the one to which they are bound cannot be taken away. John 10, 28 to 30. Um, let me, I'm going to flip over to that. I want to read that to you. John chapter 10, you can turn there if you want. John chapter 10, verses 28 to 30. Jesus says this. I give them eternal life. Okay, so we're talking about eternal life in him. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So those things that, we're, that we are bound with, faith, hope, and love, we can't, those things cannot be broken. And the one to which or to whom they, bo- they bind us, Christ, cannot be taken away from us. They, we cannot be snatched out of his hand. So when the gospel advances, faith, hope, and love we find take place in the church or growing in the church. And our third point today, when the gospel advances or results of the gospel advancing, is that there's fruit bearing in the church. 
There's fruit bearing in the church. Verse 6 of our text says, so i got to get back there. Verse 6 of our text says, uh, so he's just said, you have faith in Christ, you have love for the saints, there's hope laid up for you in heaven, and you've heard of this in the word of truth. Verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So in verse 5, if you look at the verse right before that, Paul calls the gospel message that they heard from Epaphras, he calls it the word of truth. And truth is absolute and universal and final. Truth is absolute universal and final if you remember two weeks ago when i wrapped up the sermon on the mount we discussed that the christian worldview is the only worldview that can be proven to be true we discussed that truth is absolute it's not relative and truth is truth for everyone no matter what they claim about any kind of personal truth If something is true, it's true across the board, no matter what. Because what the Colossians... Sorry, let's go back to that just for a minute. I said it's absolute, universal, and final. Let me just describe these a little bit for you. It's absolute because there is not more than one. There's only one truth. Because... You have, if something is true, everything else, everything else that does not fall in line with that is false. There's, so it's absolute because there's only one truth. It's universal because truth applies to all people at all times in all cultures. And it's final because um, it will not, in fact, it cannot change. Now, because what the Colossians heard was what Paul calls the word of truth, it's absolute and it's final and there's nothing that needs to be added to it and the truth is bearing fruit it is the truth it's the the gospel that takes root in the lives of believers and begins to grow and bear fruit as the spirit takes that truth and continues to work it and teach it in your life and bring you alongside an understanding of it. As the Holy Spirit teaches God's word, it produces the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians chapter 5. And we know that as the Spirit takes the truth and applies it in our life and works it in our lives and teaches us the truth, we know that it's going to bear fruit because God's word does not return to him empty or void. Isaiah 55 Verses 10 to 11 says this. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So God's word of truth, as the gospel comes to us, and as we receive it, 
And then as we, after we receive it, as we spend the rest of our life studying it and, and taking it in and allowing it to govern our lives and change us, the Spirit is working in our lives to take that truth and accomplish what God wants to accomplish with it and use it for the purpose that God gave it. And that purpose is to grow that fruit in us and to make us more and more like him. So as the Colossians have heard this, that Paul calls the word of truth, it is bearing fruit in them, just like Paul has witnessed and heard about it bearing fruit all across the globe at the time, as far as they had been with the gospel. And so to further assure them that Epaphras' message was the sufficient gospel, Paul points to the fruit that he hears about in their church, and he expresses that this same fruit is growing so that they understand what, what they might be hearing of other churches or what Paul might be commending in other churches. He's seeing the same thing in them. It's sufficient. Paul references the fruit that's growing in both the church, so like we talked about faith, hope, and love. He's seeing that taking place in the church, but he also, to, to just assure them that, they, that the, what they heard from Epaphras was, was right and that Epaphras is qualified to take the gospel to them, he's also seeing fruit and referencing fruit that's growing in Epaphras. If you look at the last two verses, verses 7 and 8, as he's talking about this, he says, just as you have learned it from Epaphras, and he calls him our beloved fellow servant, and he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so he's referencing, I'm seeing fruit in you, and it's suffi- the gospel is sufficient, and it's bearing fruit, and it's evidence that we can all see. And if there's any question about whether Epaphras gave you the full gospel or not, or some kind of um, gospel that's not complete or faulty in some way, you need to know he's also a fellow servant of Christ, and he is a faithful minister of the word. All right, so when the gospel advances, the results we see are thanksgiving in the church, faith, hope, and love taking root in the church, and fruit-bearing that we see all over in not just Colossae, but other churches, and we should be seeing that in churches today in America. Now, the advancement of the gospel also results in prayer among God's people, but um, we're not covering that today. Next week, when we move on in the text, we're going to get into Paul's specific prayer for them. And we'll talk about how the advancement of the gospel brings about prayer in the life of the believer and among God's people. um, And what Paul specifically asks God for these believers. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you that your word does not go out and then return void. But that when the gospel takes root in somebody's life, we know that now the Holy Spirit is going to be working, taking that truth and teaching them and growing them and transforming their life so that it is bearing fruit 
and that fruit then is a testimony to the world and we need to be we need to be people who do that as a body of Christ but also as individuals we need to be people who the fruit of the spirit is so evident in our lives that those in the culture around us, those who we work with, those we go to school with, those that we hang out with on the weekends when we have free time, those in our family, those that we just encounter at the grocery store, we need to be so overflowing of the fruit of the Spirit that our lives touch every one of them, and every one of them experiences you when they're around us. And Paul is very, very praise, praises and very complimentary of the church in Colossae because of these three things, faith, hope, and love, that, that are foundations for the life of a believer. They are evidence of being truly saved and walking with Christ. And this church, though threatened with some kind of false teaching, is bearing that fruit. So help us to be like the believers in Colossae as we interact with our world. In Jesus' name, amen.